So the Sandernistas, the DSA, and the Jacobinites preached a winning strategy. Avoid the culture war, stick to redistributionist programs like healthcare and college tuition, and the left, as they call themselves, will build a mass base and take over the Democratic Party. But voters roundly rejected that approach, routing Sanders and sending a clear message that defeating Trump is more important. And then the largest radical uprising of a generation, the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that has nothing to do with democratic socialist redistributionism and everything to do about America's racist culture, took center stage. How did the Jacobinites and Sandinistas make such mistakes in their thinking? Will they learn from these mistakes? All this and more on this episode of Radio Free Humanity. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we're going to be talking about why the Sandernistas and the DSA got it wrong. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some other issues and recent events. For today's current events section, we're going to be talking about one aspect of the current George Floyd protest, Black Lives Matter uprisings, and that is the demands by activists for the removal of monuments, statues, flags, other symbols of the Confederacy, of slavery. Uh, we've seen demands like that in the U.S. and in other countries. And there's been some pushback, some criticism that this is purely just a diversion into the, the world of symbolism and isn't practical enough politically or that it's anti-historical. So we're going to address these questions today. Well, you know, a symbol is, is a symbol. A symbol is not the real thing. But the thing that strikes me the most is this is taking place concurrently with and is not taking away from the, the ongoing fight against police brutality. So the fight against the symbols of white supremacy and the fight against white supremacy and police violence, it's all one fight. And so to pit one against the other in this kind of a situation seems to me to be a distraction. Yeah, and symbols are still real. They, there's a reason that in a war you plant flags on hilltops and, and on the battlefields because you're, the, the symbol marks territory. It shows you know, the extent to which you've lost or, or won ground in a battle. Um, symbols can be threats to a people. They stake out that this is you know, your territory and the people who are opposed to your way of thinking are not welcome in, in, that, in that territory. You know, the Confederate flag is a way of threatening certain groups of people and welcoming and tolerating a certain amount of uh, you know, racism. So they're real, they have real effects on people's lives. They're not just some abstract part of history. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not a celebration of heritage. Right. Uh, it's a threat. Yes, and these symbols are used by people consciously and intentionally as a threat, and they're perceived as a threat. And so it's really disingenuous for people to act like it's some innocent historical legacy or something. Right. I mean, something that I think is fairly widely known in the U.S. now, but maybe not abroad, uh, that I should mention is these Confederate monuments, you know, were not put up during the Confederate States of America period, during the Civil War. They were put up after the defeat of Reconstruction to commemorate, you know, and stick it to the, the, the black people. Like, we've now taken back power, we the white supremacists, and we're going to celebrate our people, the people that we like, you know, the, the Confederates. So they're not from the Civil War. They're, they're from the period.
period of the the, the retrogression uh, against radical reconstruction after the Civil War. And another thing that is shocking to people not from the U.S. is the Confederacy is not a regional geographic thing solely. It's a state of mind. You know, in upstate New York, a couple hours away from New York City, you go places and, and you got people with uh, houses and, and Confederate flags in the window. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in rural Indiana, which is part of the North, part of the Union, and there were and still are Confederate flags all over the place. And my story, because I'm older, goes back even further. My parents are from the, the North, from Philadelphia, but they were living in Virginia and not like the so-called communist part of Virginia, you know, Northern Virginia. They were living in Virginia, Virginia. Now, this was late 70s, and I was like a little kid. You know, so the, we're, we're down there in, in middle Southern Virginia, and Lincoln's birthday in the United States is, uh, you know, a national holiday. In Virginia, it wasn't talking about symbols. The the state holiday was Lee Jackson Day. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, right? And my mother just said to my, because my, you know, my father was like all absorbed in his work. He was a young guy, you know, with the, you know, career work. My mother said, you know, for the sake of this kid, we we can't, we can't do this. We got to get the hell out of here. And we did. And the rest is history. So (laughs) these symbols communicate certain things. And and that's always been the case. It's not, it's not anything new. You know it, I know it, but maybe everybody doesn't know it is just what you said is these symbols are are meant to indicate here's what we're for we're on top we can uh impose this and the fight against them is is just so incredibly uh important for that reason when it's not a substitute for you know actual action against the conditions that prevail and and it's not right i mean there it's going along with that and, and we can't for, forget the murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, again, Virginia, over during the Tiki Torch, white supremacist, Jews will not replace us march, which was what was the, that march all about? Confederate statues. Good people on both sides. What this is all about, you know, this fight now is, it's about, are there good people on both sides? And they're forcing a lot of people to take a stand against that. You know, even, even down to the level of corporations. You know, we also sometimes hear that this is an issue of free speech and that the left is on the wrong side. I mean, there's this piece by Brendan O'Neill in uh, Spiked Online, the British, they call themselves leftist journal, uh, you know, criticizing this as showing all the, the things that are wrong with woke culture and identity culture, as he calls it. And it's similar to what we're going to be talking about in the main seg- segment today, This because we hear the same thing from people at Jacobin magazine, that identity politics is a distraction from real class politics and and the Brendan O'Neill piece from a few days in Spiked Online was making those same kind of arguments even worse though because it was also saying you know this is taking down these monuments as an assault on free speech I mean, you get this stuff that, first of all, taking down these monuments and stuff is somehow an affront to free speech, which I, I don't get that at all. I, 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 it doesn't make a, a damn bit of sense to me. One wonders why, in the midst of all of this, you've got the chokehold murder of George Floyd. You've got the massive protests against police brutality. You've got the calls to, you know, reform the police, defund the police. You know, they're going back and looking at the murder of Breonna Taylor and, 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 and others. A lot of real stuff is happening. And they're supposedly, you know, like against focusing on symbols. So what do they do? They focus on symbols while avoiding all of this stuff, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, who is not dealing with the real situation? The, the protesters are dealing with the real situation. Black Lives Matter is dealing with the real situation. You and I are, are focused on the real situation. These people, under the guise of, oh, we shouldn't focus on symbolism, are focused totally on symbolism. I mean, do they not understand? how hypocritical they're being and they're talking out of both sides of their mouth or do they understand it and think we won't see it yeah calling hate speech free speech is such a trope of the right wing it's a sad to see leftists uh, adopt the same kind of arguments but even on its own terms how 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 is it a matter of free speech to dictate to a whole community what will appear in the public places of that community 
do I have a right to put up my, my statues that I want and that no in the public places and nobody else has any say over the matter? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand it, and it, it doesn't it doesn't compute. Yeah, and we, when we talk about free speech, the word speech in that phrase is not meant to refer to every word ever said. I mean, death threats are not free speech. You don't have a right to threaten someone with, with violence. And also these people at Spike, do they trade in some very dangerous tropes when they talk about the so-called woke elite or the woke Taliban trying to paint you know, oppressed peoples who are fighting for their rights as some sort of elitist enemy. Sure, sure. They're, they're not great thinkers, so none of this is original. This all comes from, you know, people like George Wallace and Spiro Agnew and Richard Nixon. I mean, it was, it's, it's been there for a very long time. Pointy-headed liberals and, the, you know, basically the, the Jews who, who own the media and, and Hollywood are, are doing this to whip up the anger and the hatred of, of these other people and are using them. So this is where, this is, this has always been the connection. Well, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next for our main segment, a discussion of the demise of Sandinista and Jacobin ideology. So we're going to spend this podcast talking about two major body blows that have been delivered to the ideology of democratic socialism. And by that, we're talking about the people around the Sanders campaign and Jacobin magazine and, and people in that social democratic crowd. Um, these two major body blows being the implosion of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and the George Floyd protests. Uh, Sandernistas and Jacobinites claim to be the leaders of the left, to, to know the forward movement of socialism in the U.S., and, and they predicted a new radical mass politics that was essentially colorblind, focused on class solidarity around economic redistributionist proposals. But voters, especially black voters, roundly rejected Sanders in the primaries. And now the largest, most radical social uprising in a generation has arisen entirely focused on issues of racial justice, not the sort of colorblind economism that uh, was, was preached by the Sandinistas. So Andrew, we'll, we'll get to the Sanders debacle later, but maybe we should start by just talking about this ongoing struggle against police violence. You know, what do you think are the main takeaways at this point? Well, it's accomplished a lot in a very short period. I mean, one really important thing is that it's not going away. People are not giving up. You know, there have been more breakouts of police violence, and they're met with uh, protests, and those protests have been getting at least the appearance of uh, action on the part of uh, mayors and city councils and, and police commissioners, whatever it might be. To my mind, the, the, the biggest element here is the, the coalescence uh, of a large number of white people, especially young people, with the, 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 the black masses uh, taking their lead from them. This is the first time ever for an urban rebellion in the U.S. It's, 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 really, it's really important, I think, because it has gotten widespread support. I mean, just beyond the participation, which is immensely important and huge, it's noteworthy that like there really has been a change in attitudes. The protests and the cause have won the support despite Trump's efforts to incite racist reaction and, and police brutality, or maybe because of that. And it's changed attitudes really, really quickly in a way that I haven't seen, I think, ever regarding the immense police budgets, funding the police, and acknowledgement of racism, as we tend to use the word racism as a problem of the system, not just like individual prejudice. And then, and then you know, then you've got uh, some victories against police brutality, convictions, you know, you've got people being uh, charged, you've got victory against this and that and the other uh, symbol of the Confederacy. So, you know, a lot of this so far is window dressing, but it indicates uh, a movement that is certainly not giving up, that's on the move, and that that is being, it has to be reckoned with. On June 2nd, Marxist Humanist Initiative came out with an editorial called U.S. Explodes with Protests Over Police Murder of George Floyd. And in that editorial, we really stressed this aspect of the interracial character of the protest and, and brought up that Raya Dunia of Skaya argued similarly in her pamphlet, 
several decades ago, uh, American Civilization on Trial, she argued that the pivotal moments of forward movement in the U.S. have always been those moments when white working people took their lead from the black masses and coalesced with them. And this perspective in which the struggle against racism is seen at the forefront of radical movement, that really stands in stark contrast with this Jacobin version, which sees racial justice as a future byproduct of a benevolent redistributionist state. So let's get into this. What is the Jacobin line on race and, and class? Uh, you know, now that the uprisings are happening, we're seeing them try to say that all this stuff conforms to their perspectives. But in reality, uh, Jacobin and the Sandinistas have been pushing a colorblind, class-based, economistic orientation for many years. Uh, certainly. Uh, and we're going to talk about a, a piece uh, in a moment that came out in Jacobin uh, on May 25 called We Need a Class War, Not a Culture War. And May 25, the day that this line was repeated for the umpteenth time, was, of course, the day that um, George Floyd was murdered and the wave of protests began. So on June 19th, um, the New York Times had this great article, I thought, called Bernie Sanders Predicted Revolution, Just Not This One. And the author, Sidney Ember, wrote that, quote, Sanders described the protest as a validation of his theory of social change. And she has this quote from Sanders where he says, quote, what I've said for a very long time is that real change is never going to come from the top on down. It's always from the bottom up. Um, but of course, that's, that's a very <laughs> abstract defense <laughs> of a, a way of getting around the fact that he didn't call this one at all. And she notes um, quite correctly that, quote, in reality, his campaign avoided discussing race and culture in favor of emphasizing inequality and social democratic proposals. And she goes on to give some examples of, you know, speaking events, even like forums on race where he completely avoided talking about race and racism and just always pivoted to his mantra, which was the one percent universal health care, free college, all those things. She says, quote, Sanders supporters say that racial justice was a central part of his campaign, but this is always couched in terms of how economic proposals would decrease inequality. Uh, I think that's completely accurate. Um, that's the only way that they're comfortable talking about race and racism um, is through social democratic proposals that will decrease inequality. But as you point out, Andrew, you were the one who found this piece uh, this is amazing that on the same day George Floyd was murdered, um, this piece in Jacobin called came out called We Need a Class War, Not a Culture War, in which the author Dustin Guastella um, comes right out and makes the arguments that will immediately be knocked down by masses in motion uh, in, in, over the next week. And he says... We should avoid the alienating cultural appeals that are so often grafted onto an otherwise popular political program. He continues, Cutting through the culture war was Sanders' gift. Unfortunately, since his exit from the race, it has come roaring back with even greater stupidity. Liberal lockdowns versus freedom fighters and open up USA, faux outrage at Nancy Pelosi calling Trump obese, China virus versus COVID-19. The only thing all these fights have in common is that none of them deal with socialist politics. None of them advocate for a particular policy or social reform that would help regulate our economy and working people's interests. None of them help organize the have-nots together by virtue of their shared economic interests against the haves. In fact, all of them succeed in burying any analysis of political economy beneath an avalanche of cultural commentary. This could and should be good, great news for the left. Working class voters don't want candidates to use ultra-liberal rhetoric, but neither do they want them to tear up the important gains from the 1960s rights revolution. They do want health care, a decent job, a pro-worker, policies that make it easier to unionize. It, be, it would be wise to pitch campaigns that meet those demands. A simple message built around destroying the obscenity of inequality and providing universal public goods would likely do well to unite workers across race, gender, region, and ideology. It just can't be paired with an alienating woke aesthetic, and woke is in quotes there in a sarcastic way. 
That means we should avoid the culture war and battles over online discourse and get back to the business of organizing within our unions and beyond to build an institutionally vibrant and working class public sphere. There he comes out and says it. Yeah. Very clearly. Very clearly. My main reaction to reading this, hearing this for the umpteenth time uh, is, is a point that, that Brendan has made several times, which is just to question this line that these social democratic programs are somehow inherently intrinsically part of the left. I mean, I think we have to pause and ask what, what Dustin Guastella says. What's the warrant for calling this colorblind economistic line? What's, what's the warrant for calling it a leftist analysis? What's specifically leftist about it? You know, why don't we listen to Tucker Tucker Carlson? Uh, he's the famous Fox News commentator, virulent racist, white nationalist. Uh, he's trotted out a very similar line, if not identical, a very similar line in service of his arch reactionary rant uh, against the uprising for black lives. America's core problems, in fact, are economic. Can your kids earn enough to form stable families of their own and live with dignity. Everything flows from that, and it's what most Americans of all colors worry about most. So, of course, it's the one thing our leaders hate to talk about. That's not accidental. Again, it's by design. What you're watching is class war disguised as race war. Keep the population at one another's throats, angry, suspicious, tribal, and maybe they'll never figure out how much we're stealing. The biggest change to American society over the past 50 years has been the death of the middle class. This used to be a middle class country. It is not anymore. Most of our population has become poorer in real terms, while a shrinking number of people control an ever-expanding percentage of our wealth. That means that fewer Americans overall have a meaningful stake in the society, and more are dependent. That makes the country much more volatile than it once was. These riots really shouldn't surprise you. It's hard to know exactly who is responsible for these sad changes to America, but it's very easy to see who's benefiting from them. They're the same people lecturing you about white privilege and systemic racism. This isn't accidental. Citibank is happy to put Black Lives Matter logos on its Instagram page precisely so you won't ask what interest rates they're charging black people. If you really cared about the poor, you wouldn't crush them with debt they can't afford. Of course, if you really cared about black lives, you probably wouldn't put abortion clinics in black neighborhoods. But they do. These people are scam artists. They're playing you. Keep that in mind the next time they tell you you must hate your neighbor, which is exactly what they're telling you. Wow, that is such a striking pairing, hearing Tucker Carlson and Jacobin making the exact same populist arguments about class and race. How do you think they'll respond? <laughs> do, you, do you think there is a response? I mean, these are the people who not only say they're on the left, they, they, they anoint themselves as the left. Yeah. You know, and anybody who disagrees with them is a neoliberal shill who, you know, is just uh, at best uh, caught up in identity politics, you know, not socialism, right? I mean, so, so this is like key to everything that they're about. How are they going to respond when, when it, it, it's so clear that what they're saying can be tilted this way, it can be tilted that way, the content is, is it's not specifically leftist, it can be used in service of, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson's white, white, white nationalism. Yeah, and this whole New Deal revival dressed up as socialism conveniently ignores the, ignores the fact that the New Deal was very racist and that the power of the Southern Democrats was central to the political consensus around the New Deal. Yeah, and, and I, I grew up in one of these uh, New Deal towns, one of these experimental towns that was built during the New Deal by uh, Guy Rexford Tugwell uh, mm. with, you know, uh, right. and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I didn't learn until decades later, only the last couple of years, that there was official policy when these things were built, you know, and then settled is they weren't going to let and they did not let black people, you know, in these communities. Wow. Wow. And this wasn't deep south. This was Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. Yeah. America's racial hierarchy was it was built into the structure of the New Deal. It it all sorts of points. 
But you rarely hear about that from the left nowadays. It's all sunshine and roses when they talk about the New Deal. Or maybe they say, oh, well, we'll do the New Deal, but without racism. But that doesn't get to the question of, like, uh, what is fundamentally leftist about these politics that can be used to create racial hierarchy. Yeah, but neoliberalism, you know, led to the New Deal. (laughs) (laughs) That should be a bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, I think as we get into the podcast more, we're going to answer this question of why the Jacobinites are, are not able to take responsibility for their theoretical failures on this point. Now that this uprising is a real thing, the Jacobinites are, of course, going to say that racial justice has always been central to their vision and to their politics. And they're going to point out that the Sanders platform had this or that plank on anti-racism or pro-immigrant stuff. And they're going to probably argue that Sanders had better positions on these issues than most Democratic candidates. But that doesn't excuse the fact that there was a conscious effort to downplay anti-racism in and of itself because they thought it was divisive and it was going to cost them the election. Um, And, you know, they're happy to give lip service to these issues. But at the same time, they've consistently tried to argue that socialist politics should primarily focus on class, as they they say, and, and which just means focusing on redistributionist economic uh, politics, which is explicitly what that piece by Justin Guastella argued that we read earlier. When when they did get to the issue of battling racism, they almost always funneled anti-racist politics through the lens of redistributionist economic proposals, as, as you said, Brendan. And every every point, even if it's not dealing with proposals, always gets funneled into this mold of uh, income and wealth redistribution. Like, what's the response to Minneapolis? You know, there's a rebellion, there's looting occurs. And what do these people in Jacobin and outside of Jacobin have to say? Well, basically nothing except some tangential point. Well, these people are looters, but that's no big deal because the big looters are the corporations. I mean, at this moment in history, that that's an important point to make. I I, I don't think so. Th- this funneling and reduction of everything to redistribution that just pervades the, the Sanders campaign, as the Sydney Ember article pointed out that we quoted from before. It's there in the Sanders campaign, there in Jacobin. The, the line is always that modification of the old line that, you know, you need a socialist revolution to take care of any of these other problems. So the real line is first we have to address income inequality and then that will automatically or, or semi-automatically or make it possible to solve these other problems. And we really can't do anything about them until we get to the main issue, which is the economic inequality. It's a very old left line you know, they had to do something about the need for a social revolution that's been twisted and, and co-opted. And it, it, it hasn't been, you know, something that, that has been widely in, in favor in the left for, for generations now, but, but they've brought it back. You know, the Jacobinites, the Sandinistas, they always have this escape route. They have this plausible deniability because they will say that anti-racism is central to their politics. But for them, that means that they focus on all this economistic redistributionist uh, politics. They explicitly make arguments about downplaying culture and race, but then somehow existing alongside of that is a plank that says anti-racism is central to their analysis. So so it's there's a little bit of a disconnect. Right. I mean, th- this way of making something supposedly central by tacking it on, you know, and having two things lying side by side there, it, it goes against the reality of centuries of American experience. Because of slavery and persistent racism, blacks remain very disproportionately working class and poor, and at the bottom of the working class. And so when one talks about the class struggle, uh, and when one talks about the black struggle, these are not two separate things lying side by side. Okay, the fight against racism is a class issue in this country. 
and it's an important facet of, of class struggle. And, and that's the case both because, of objectively, the overwhelming majority of black people are in a subordinate economic position, and also because the rulers are com- completely in with this strategy of exploiting white supremacist thinking among white working people. And they use that again and again to divide and conquer the working class. So unless there's a frontal attack against white supremacy, you're going to have a working class that's divided against itself and impotent. I, I don't think the problem is that they can't understand the integrality of two separate things. I don't think it's a, some abstract methodological problem. You know, it's not a failure to, to, to understand dialectics or anything so general. I mean, for instance, when you flip it around, they have no trouble at all recognizing that, you know, to eradicate racism, we have to have profound economic changes. So they can see how economic things very easily impinge on the question of eradicating racism. But the problem is just very simply, they don't want to recognize the flip side of that. In other words, they don't want to recognize that to eradicate uh, class oppression in the U.S., that requires a profound struggle uh, against white supremacy and, and white nationalism. You know, it's not a methodological problem here. It, they, they, they just don't want to recognize that. They, they want to stick to a, a colorblind, economistic line. You know, part of the dangerous side of these types of politics has been the way they've worked to normalize Trumpism by highlighting these economic redistributionist proposals for their universal appeal. What, in fact, they were doing was pandering to Trump's white nationalist base, uh, which is essentially normalizing it, um, trying to win over Trump voters with these um, social democratic goodies and relegating the black masses to the back of the bus. Uh, throwing them under the bus. I I think that probably Jacobinites would be insulted uh, to hear that they were normalizing Trumpism, but I don't know uh, any other way of describing the what their approach has been. Right, and and they do that in so m- many ways. The normalization of Trumpism is, is really inextricable from their basic line because their their main enemy is, is neoliberalism, the Democratic Party establishment, and so forth. And to to try to make the case for that, they have to say, well, you know, okay, Trump is bad, but like they're all bad. Uh, you know, uh, I can't sleep at night, but I could, wouldn't be able to sleep at night if Hillary were, were were president. You know, to paraphrase Jill Stein, okay, it was slightly different, but it's the, the, the same line, you know, again and again, they overlook this, that, and the other horror that Trumpism has been inflicting on us now for, for close to, to four years. They want to treat the Democratic Party mainstream as one tendency in uh, American politics, themselves as another one, Trumpism as a third one, and let, 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 all, let all of these contend. You know, that, that's their, their way of uh, talking about this, acting as if, you know, this is all sort of like fine and dandy normal politics instead of a, a threat, uh, you know, Trumpism being a threat to our very existence. You know, even if they don't say that black people can wait until the utopia in which our social democratic programs solve all problems. They don't say it, they might not believe it. The problem is, despite the words, by so totally prioritizing their social democratic programs and economistic demands, and by not making anything else integral but subordinating it, they're doing the same thing. They don't need those words. They're basically saying, our stuff matters, your stuff doesn't matter, right? They're not saying black lives don't matter, but what they're saying is, well, you know, here's what matters. The Green New Deal, Medicare for All, in a t- totally colorblind way that just wipes off the map all the specific issues having to do with racism. And this pandering to the Trumpist base, pandering to white nationalism, trying to outcompete it in popularity, um, and just while giving yourself some, some believable cover by engaging in some abstract rhetoric about interracial politics or anti-racist politics. It's not a solution, but it's not just a failed politics. It actually has contributed to the crisis that we are now in. And the left needs to take responsibility for the role it's played in normalizing Trumpism. And it needs to really make an about face and realize that we need to directly fight white nationalism uh, head on, not, not indirectly in some future society. Uh, and this, you know, this current uprising is is a promising beginning for the sort of politics we need right now. What 
these people are concerned about because they're concerned about political power, their own political power, and organization building and party building. The reason they move in this colorblind and economistic direction is they're, they're concerned to forge unity. And I agree with that concern to forge unity, but they're going about it in the absolutely opposite way that they should. The need for unity is no justification for this colorblind orientation that sweeps racial divisions and racial oppression under the rug, okay? You're only going to get a fake unity if you sweep that under the rug, you know, and paper over it. Uh, there's a need for genuine unity among working people in a situation where they are disunited because of racism and white supremacy. And so that's the need for unity is precisely why we have to directly confront racial divisions and racial oppression and prioritize the fight against them. Okay, Look, the perspective of, of Marx and our perspective in Marxist Humanist Initiative is emancipatory self-activity from below. The, the independent movement of, of the working class, of, of, of oppressed people, and, and so forth in their own interests. And that perspective for the future is harmed above all. It's thwarted above all by politicians like Trump, who, you know, pit working people against one another, white workers versus black workers, male workers versus female workers, you know, native-born against immigrant. It's, it pits the one against the other in order to divide and conquer them and to make everybody his followers. You know, I alone can fix it. Okay, so to move from this situation of subservience to Trumpism and, and this profound set of divisions within the working people, what you need is, just as you said, you got to directly confront the white supremacy, you got to directly confront the, the you know, anti-immigrant nationalism and the misogyny and so forth. And that mentality has to be broken. And it really requires a frontal attack on Trumpism and a humiliating, crushing defeat of it. And that is the kind of thing that will deflate the popularity of white supremacy within the white nationalist base that Trump has and hopefully reorient it into an independent path, you know, emancipatory self-activity from below. And we've talked about this next point before in the podcast. And that's that the real overriding goal behind the Jacobinite crowd, the social Democrat, is to win power for themselves as as a left. And they prioritize that and see sort of substitute themselves in for the working class or for the masses. And so if something helps them get power, then they that by default, they think means that it helps um, the working class or it's a it's a step towards socialism. Um, and some future victory for the oppressed masses in the world. We've called this a left-first orientation, this type of substitutionism. Uh, and it means that for them, the main enemy is the Democratic Party and neoliberalism, and it causes them to do things like downplay the threat of Trumpism and downplay the, the threats of white nationalism and authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, this is an important point of understanding what they're about. I mean, their economistic orientation is not just some abstract theoretical mistake, and their desire to win over the white Trumpite base is not just, uh, you know, some random strategic error. It, it, it flows from uh, their left-first orientation and their desire to, you know, win power for the left, in other words, themselves. You know, they think that the economistic orientation is popular and will help them win power. They think that they can win over the white working class so-called base of Trumpism uh, and that that's a road to, to power. So we've been talking about the massive blow that the George Floyd protests have dealt to the ideology of Jacobinism and social democratic socialism. But just before that came the blow of Sanders' defeat in the Democratic primaries. And not just that he was defeated, but that there was a huge outpouring of support for uh, Joe Biden, even in places where Biden wasn't even campaigning. And Sanders really had a, a pathetic performance in a lot of places. Um, you know, if I'd just been looking at my Facebook feed, I would have thought that the whole world was ready to vote for Bernie Sanders. But apparently, you know, the whole world is not on my Facebook feed. If you had looked at Twitter or even at a, a you know any publication, you would have seen uh, Bernie Sanders' tweet: "The Democratic Party establishment can't stop us. The Republican Party establishment can't stop us." 
I mean, you know, I never, I've rarely seen any politician go so far as to, you know, predict that uh, they were unstoppable. Hey, in just a moment, we're going to return to this discussion. But first, a few words from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Hello, this is Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So on April 10th, Zach Beecham had a piece in Vox where he says, quote, Sanders' defeat is a hammer blow to the class-based theory of winning political power. And by that, he's referring to Jacobin Magazine and the Sandernistas and the anti-neoliberal, anti-neoliberal left crowd. He continues, especially given socialist Jeremy Corbyn's crushing losses among the working class in the 2019 UK election. And I think, you know, you and I have both d- discussed this before. We, we completely agree with, with this, that this is a, a real defeat. Right. And it's not just an electoral defeat. It's a defeat of that so-called class-based theory of winning political power. Yeah. And the theory was that what working class people care about above all else is social democratic programs, that if you put free health care in front of them, they will follow you anywhere. Um, and that this was the overriding concern of white workers, black workers, immigrants, everybody. Uh, and thus, according to this theory, the path to political power uh, consisted of just uniting the working class behind this colorblind economic program. And it was going to bring out millions of new voters that were going to be excited about this new revolution in politics. Yeah. The, the article in, in Vox by Beecham includes a quote from uh, Nathan J. Robinson, who was writing in the anti-neoliberal left publication Current Affairs. Uh, here's how he put it back in March. Uh, Robinson said, Bernie is different from other Democrats in that he knows how to speak to Trump's own voters. Not only does he beat Trump consistently in head-to-head polling, but he offers ordinary people an ambitious social democratic agenda. An ambitious social democratic agenda that is designed to deal with their real-world problems. When Bernie tells working people he's in their corner, they can believe him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, th- this is the, the, the kind of thing that, that we're talking about when we say, you know, this is the, the, the so-called class-based theory of winning political power. You know, it's the, the pandering to, to the Trumpite base. Uh, it, it's the emphasis on these social democratic programs to the exclusion of basically everything else. There are a few reasons why they believe that this working class unity is possible just on the basis of these abstract social democratic economic pro- 
programs. I mean, one thing we heard a lot of after Trump's 2016 victory was this theory that his base was really motivated to, to vote for him by his anti-neoliberal rhetoric and these promises of, you know, uh, tearing apart free trade agreements and bringing jobs back to industrial areas and, and such. Um, and these, this sort of analysis really downplayed the appeal of misogyny and racism and white nationalism and authoritarianism amongst Trump's base and um, it ignored all of that appeal and just try to explain his appeal through these economic things. And, and, and we really had some people coming out and saying, like, this was a vote against neoliberalism and that this was an opening for the left because the left can now move on these people. Yeah, it, um, it was even characterized among the anti-neoliberal left as a working class uprising against neoliberalism. Yeah. <clears throat> Trump's yeah. election. Four years later, I don't know how many of these people are still making this argument, but we definitely heard a lot of it four years ago. The other piece of evidence that they use that supposedly confirms this economistic worldview is that they, they, they claim that their platforms and positions do well in public opinion polls, that there's wide support for them. But the polls are always very abstract. You know, they say they ask some random people in Kansas if they like if they want free health care without any kind of contextualization, like you know, who's going to pay for it and how much is it going to cost. Uh, and then they, they claim that this is evidence that there's widespread support for democratic socialism without any real understanding or discussion of how voting behavior is formed in this country, the sort of deep tribalism that American politics has become, uh, and the real role of racism and misogyny and authoritarianism informing a lot of people's overriding political identities and, and controlling their voting behavior. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, they, they continually trot out this talking point that their programs are popular. I mean, e even at the moment when like Bernie Sanders is, you know, getting his ass kicked in Super Tuesday, the Jacobinites say, oh, this was maybe not a victory for Bernie Sanders, but this was a victory for socialism. You know, people were voting for that, right? Because uh, God knows what, you know, some, some exit polls or, or something again showed that, uh, you know, in the abstract, when you don't talk about the cost, and who pays for the programs. Yeah, people like these programs. So they, 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 they really think that this is strong evidence that they're on the right track, that they do have the opportunity to win the allegiance of a mass base with these social democratic programs. But it's really their weakest point. You know, as evidence, it's incredibly weak. You got millions and millions of Trump supporters who like these programs in the abstract. Okay, but when you talk about the depth of their support, what they thrill to is chance of lock her up, you know, and what they thrill to is venomous, venomous, racist, white nationalist tirades and, and you know, promises and actions from Trump that are just absolutely horrendous, okay? That's what they really care about, uh, and that's what they voted for. So the fact that they support Trump so fervently, even at the same time as saying they like the social democratic programs, that should have been sufficient to convince even the anti-neoliberal so-called left that the economic issues that are of utmost concern to them aren't the be-all and end-all in the minds of the American voters, or for that matter, the the, the British voters that were confronting the issue of Brexit. So it really should have been sufficient to convince them, you know, if, if they had thought about their issues and voters' responses in some context. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't sufficient. Uh, and, and, and that's why they, they didn't foresee the implosion of Sanders' campaign. You know, the Sanders crowd, I think, was just really surprised at how badly they got beaten by Biden in the primaries where Sanders had been campaigning for months, maybe years in some states, on the ground with lots of people. Uh, Biden won without, in some states where he had no campaign offices, where he was completely out of money. Uh, he'd been written off by the media, and everyone had decided he was a dead dog. And then all of a sudden, he you know, cleans house in South Carolina and then starts sweeping the rest of the primaries. And, and then immediately we heard these sort of conspiratorial grumblings about this centrist conspiracy or people talking about how this was a, an expression of some yearning f to return to Obama era normalcy. But I don't I did not read this way at all. It seemed obvious to me that this, these votes for Biden came not out of some great love of Joe Biden. 
but just because a lot of voters, especially black voters, especially black voters from the South, said, look, we have to prioritize defeating Donald Trump above all else. This is a matter of life and death. And we don't have time for all this infighting in the Democratic Party. We don't have time to make this election a referendum on democratic socialism. We saw what happened in 2016. We cannot have a repeat of that. It seemed obvious to me that this was what was going on, but you know there was all this conspiracy mongering on in the left, and there was even this piece in Jacobin after Super Tuesday by Matt Carp, who wrote, "Quote: Last weekend, Democratic Party bosses decided almost overnight to place all their chips on Joe Biden. Last night, in a frantic lunge for safety, Democratic voters followed their lead." You know, Carp's a big deal person. He's a history professor at Princeton, but his version of the history is just ass backwards. It, it just flies in the face of the facts. You know, he's saying the party bosses, I don't even know who they are, and the Democratic Party decided, you know, we're going to go all in on Biden. And in a frantic lunch for safety, then the Democratic voters followed their lead. How that happened, God knows. You know, so they all went for, for Biden on Super Tuesday. You know, I've looked at the evidence and all, all the evidence goes the, the other way. Yeah, and before South Carolina, Biden had no endorsements for any of the so-called party bosses. He got one endorsement from Jim Clyburn, a local black congressman with not a big national name. But there were no endorsements from the, the so-called party bosses. Yeah, if there are such things as Democratic Party bosses. I mean, I always think back to a very different time and era, actually, before I was born. But Will Rogers saying, I, I'm, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. You, you know, I mean, we, we, who, who are who, who? Tom Perez is, is, is a party. Who are the who are the party bosses? You know, and, and, and how, how, how are how, how are these voters like responding to the their directives. Yeah, so Biden's victory in South Carolina was a conspiracy of black neoliberal shills. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you had about 300,000 black people voted according to exit polls uh, in South Carolina, and 180,000 of these 300,000 black people were neoliberal shills that went for Biden. Uh, 50,000 went for uh, Sanders. So Biden got 61% of the black vote. Sanders got 17% of the black vote. Uh, you know, Biden also won among whites, but by a much closer margin. He got 33%. Sanders got 23 I mean, so this was like, you know, the, the black people of South Carolina saying enough is enough. Cut the crap. You know, we don't want the bloodletting of 2016. You know, what we want is to be done with Trump and Trumpism. That's a real material threat to us. And there was this conspiracy chatter that all the other candidates, you know, dropping out was some sort of conspiracy. But uh, as far as we can tell, there were independent decisions made on different days. I think they all saw the writing on the wall and realized they couldn't win the primaries without a big turnout of black voters. And in terms of the you know party bosses, you know Obama and, and Warren and for that matter too, they, she, they didn't in, endorse Biden until after Sanders had endorsed Biden. And before Obama and others endorsed Biden, uh, there were tw there were 26 primaries in which Biden won 19 of them. Sanders only won 6 and California was the only large state he won. The other states were small states like Vermont and Utah. You know, I, th I think I think the the role of black voters here is 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 particularly important. There's incomplete exit poll data when you, you look at like who voted how by by race, and you know exit poll data are not perfect anyway. But we do have data for 15 states, you know, telling us who voted how, white, black, and so forth. What this says is that in these 15 states, there were 2.4 million black neoliberal shills that voted for Biden, and only 0.7 million, 700 thousand million blacks voted for Bernie Sanders. So Biden outperformed Sanders among blacks by 64 to 19 margin. Biden also won among, you know, whites, but the margin was much smaller, 41% to 30%. And this this is a really consistent pattern in state after state. It's not being skewed by one or two big states or anything. In state after state, the more white a state is, the better Sanders did compared to Biden. The more black the state is, the larger the share of the black population, the worse Sanders did. For instance, in the first 31 primaries overall, 
Sanders racked up 31% of the primary vote. But in the South, which is disproportionately black, he did much more poorly. Uh, he only got 15% of the vote in Mississippi, 17% in Alabama, 20% in South Carolina, and so forth and so on. So the evidence really suggests that voters took the lead here, and especially black voters took the lead. Uh, and the party bosses followed their lead, not the other way around. And that seems strange to people, but it's a different Democratic Party than it used to be. You know, it's different than it was on, under, under Clinton and so forth. Uh, for whatever reasons and whatever degree of disingenuousness, you know, it, 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 it doesn't just, you know, ignore what black people are doing and saying. So, so far we're talking about how Sanders failed to bring out this mass working class vote based on economic programs that he promised. But it turns out that actually wasn't his real strategy, right? Yes, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, they, so the, the, the Sanders campaign just didn't think that he, Sanders would win the nomination through, you know, massive appeal to the broad Democratic electorate. Here's what they were counting on. They were hoping to really turn out the youth vote because the youth vote is, you know, very pro-Sanders. So they were hoping and thinking that they could really turn out huge numbers of young voters and huge numbers of first-time voters, people usually don't vote, okay? And they could do that in the primaries. And the other thing they were hoping and counting on and why the coalescence around Biden really came as a crushing blow, the other thing they were hoping and counting on is that they would be getting something like the situation that the Republicans faced in 2016 that allowed Trump to squeak through and get the nomination of just a lot, a lot of candidates and support for all the candidates being, you know, very fractured. And so somebody with minority support, you know, 30% or so support could squeak through with a plurality. They were thinking, well, if Sanders can go through the primary season and get about 30% of the delegates, okay, which is about what, what he got, at least in popular vote, 30%. They thought that that would be enough to uh, make the Democratic uh, convention a contested convention, and then, you know, all bets are off and he might get the nomination. In April 2019, there was an article in The Atlantic, and the author of the article reports that Sanders the Sanders campaign was, quote, hoping that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris will split the black electorate in South Carolina, close quote, uh, and that Sanders would, quote, win enough delegates to put him into contention at the convention. They say they don't need him to get more than 30 percent of the delegates in the primaries to make that happen. OK, so this was was not a broad majoritarian kind of strategy. This was a squeak through with 30 percent. And, you know, it, it would have worked if the the black neoliberal shills hadn't uh, screwed everything up. But because of that and uh, yeah, this stuff, there was coalescence behind Biden instead of a field that was you know, hugely split many different ways. Um, so 30% wasn't enough. And regarding the youth vote, Sanders, again, did very well among youth insofar as capturing a big, big share of the youth vote. But his campaign strategy depended on ginning up the size of the total youth vote in relationship to the non-youth vote, and that just didn't happen. Uh, again, the, the exit poll data is fragmentary, but there are 15 states for which we got Democratic primary exit poll data for 2016 in 2020 that we can compare. In every single one of those 15 states, the turnout among voters 30 years of age and over increased by a larger percentage than the turnout of said voters 29 years old, or where the turnout fell, the, the youth vote fell by a, a bigger percentage. Overall, in these in these 15 states, turnout among people 30 and over rose from 2016 to 2020. That was a rise of 22%, but turnout among people 30 and under was down, actually, by about 6%. Okay, so that, that you know, Sanders just energizing, you know, hundreds of thousands of youth, millions of youth just to vote for him, it just didn't happen. Uh, and regarding their hope for attempt to, you know, get huge numbers of first-time voters. Um, it, that didn't happen on, you know, a large scale either. It's a very mixed bag. Uh, the fragmentary exit poll data indicate that basically in some states, the share of first-time voters fell. It was flat in a couple places. It, was, it rose in some places. Um, but if you look at it overall, the share of Democratic primary voters that were first-time voters was basically 
basically about the same in 2016 and 2020. It went down slightly in 2020 from, from 2016. Okay, But there was no huge outpouring of first-time voters on behalf of Sanders. We, we, we mentioned this before, but I, th- I think there's a real mental block that is not going to allow a lot of these DSA Jacob Jacobinites to understand the real failure that they're that, that they've faced with here and to honestly engage with sober senses um, with with what's going on in the country and to question their point of view uh, I think part of it is just because they see themselves as the only left or at least the only real left engaged in practical politics they dismiss other types of leftist politics as abstract or ultra leftist but as not being um, something that has any purchase on real political events um, and because of this they they really are not good at learning from their mistakes you know if the choice is between uh, uh, a politics with a lot of errors in it and no practical politics at all then maybe it's just best in their view to just keep repeating the same error-ridden politics um you know so there's this built-in motivation to avoid understanding their own defeats um or to question the framework of their worldview um you know they often frame their perspective as the socialist perspective or this is what leftists think um in a way that just uh, cancels out any kind of critical thinking um you know, don't and, think, organize. Yeah, don't yeah. think, or yeah, don't think, organize. <laughs> I like that. Um, Another and, bumper sticker. And they portray their own defeats as just an and and, and and they portray their own defeats as just a matter of insufficient power, being overwhelmed by an adversary. Like this piece uh, that just came out a few days ago by Dustin Guastella in Jacobin, where he said, simply put, we lost for reasons any great athlete might lose a much anticipated championship match. Our opponents proved to be stronger. And with analysis, an analysis like that, you never have to take responsibility for your own defeats, and you never learn anything. And don't think organize. Yeah, and don't think organize. And now that they're confronted with this George Floyd protest movement, they're trying to manipulate that to fit into their pre-existing worldview instead of trying to think about what they got wrong. You know, they're trying to say that the protests are protests against neoliberalism and that defund the police means defund the police and fund the Green New Deal. Uh, and to say that, like, you know, problems of police brutality are the result of, like, neoliberal um, investment in policing in order to distract from the inequalities of neoliberalism. So, so there's a complete, there's a lot of really far-fetched uh, attempts to make this fit into their pre-existing beliefs and no real honest attempt to, to actually look critically at themselves. I wonder whether anybody. I wonder whether anybody is buying this except themselves, and I wonder whether they themselves are even buying this. I mean, this is so forced. This is like you know, you you, you go you go to a protest, you see the signs defund the police, you see the signs you know uh, all cops are bastards, ACAB. You know, I never saw a sign defund the police and invest in the Green New Deal. It's just not there, right? And I I, I hear. Black Lives Matter, you know, I, I don't hear down with neoliberalism coming from anybody's lips or any signs. Where is this coming from? It's just it's just made up out of whole cloth. It, 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 it's, it's, it's face-saving nonsense, really. You know, this, this inability, unwillingness or whatever, refusal to listen to people, hear what they're saying in the people's own terms, this is one of the big, big failings of that whole crowd. They've got to message everything so it fits into their narrow cookie cutter categories and, and, and view of the world. And, and because of that, they systematically just again and again misrepresent and misconstrue everything that's going on. The, the underlying problem, I think, is, is, is also partly the, the arrogance and, and elitism of, of, of these people. So, so speaking of arrogance, we wanted to talk about this interview that Megan Day, the Jacobin author and DSA member, sort of prominent social democratic intellectual, did in mid-March in Vox, where the interviewer, Sean Ealing, asked her a lot of really good questions, trying to get her to, to, to uh, you know, deal with the failings of, of her ideas. But she was completely closed off to rethinking anything. You know, he, he, uh, he said, like, look, Sanders, people were not buying what Sanders was selling. 
it's insulting to say they just have false consciousness. Maybe you didn't get something. And her, her reply is, look, quote, socialists are always going to talk about the fact that there is a widespread phenomenon of working class false consciousness. She says it's a foundational tenant of the socialist political worldview, and she doesn't care that it's offensive. And later in the interview, she says, you know, maybe it hurts people's feelings when they get called a neoliberal shill, but frankly, I think it's actually indicative of a very positive phenomenon, which is confidence. And she says, you know, we're not going to win without confidence. I, I, I found this very depressing and, and absolutely stomach-turning. <laughs> what Megan Day is displaying here is, first of all, excessive confidence that isn't warranted by these folks' track record at all, and an extremely arrogant failure even to consider the possibility that Jacobin and so forth might be the ones that are burdened by what she calls false consciousness. And she just waves away the suggestion. You know, he's saying, look, you're charging people with false consciousness. Isn't that offensive? She just waves that away by claiming it's a foundational tenet of the, the socialist political worldview, which actually is not true. It wasn't part of Marx's worldview. He never used the term. It wasn't part of Frederick Engels' worldview either. He did use the term. It comes from him but he meant something entirely different by false consciousness than people not understanding their interests. Very different. It's not part of your worldview. It's not part of my worldview, you know, but no, no, these people are, you know, the socialist political worldview people. So, you know, like they are the left. They, they keep doing this. The constant mantra seems to be, we are the left. This is what all leftists will say. Anyone who disagrees has false consciousness. And when Sean Ealing in the interview says, you know, look, it's offensive to say these people had false consciousness because they disagree with you. She just says, well, it's a foundational tenet. And that just closes off the conversation and absolves her with, from this responsibility of having to think it all. You know, and it's like, okay, well, it's not offensive because it's foundational. But is it too much to just stop and think that maybe foundational and offensive aren't opposites? that maybe the foundational tenet of your political worldview is offensive and it's arrogant and it's really, really elitist? Is that really hard to understand? And, and, and is it too much to stop and think that maybe, maybe, just maybe, that has something to do with why regular people are again and again rejecting your politics? Well, we are out of time. We are over time, even though I could talk about this topic all day long. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, please stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can subscribe to the podcast everywhere podcasts are listened to, pretty much. Leave us a comment, leave us a rating. Please share with your friends and enemies. 